Uh, you'll find out in a minute why I'm so happy about <laughs> the way the Spirit works. I just have to say, uh, those songs that were chosen this morning, specifically hymns from like the 13th century and then the 18th century and then even modern hymns, it's going to fit really, really well with what I believe God is saying here in Nehemiah 9. But for the moment, if you wouldn't mind, I'm just going to move us to prayer again because this really is an important moment. We're opening the word of God and we need to have God's, God speaking clearly to us. So we need, to, and for that, we need his power. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. I can't say that enough. Thank you for your word. Thank you that by your word, you open to us the paths of life in you. Lord God, this morning, as we look into this passage in the Old Testament, a piece of history of the people of Israel, help us to understand that it is our history too. Shine yourself forth from your word. Take the halting words of a honestly not very intelligent creature of yours and breathe life into it. Show yourself powerful through your strength in our weakness as we look deeply into your word and God's people say, amen. I have to say, I really enjoy the first couple of weeks of the new year. I don't know if you guys are with me. And, and here's why. You have all these resolutions in the first week of, of the new year. Like, you know, you're going, to, you're going to go to the gym every day and you're going to make sure that you exercise and you're going to stick to your diet now. And, you know, you're going to journal every day and you're going to blog every weekday and you're going to read your Bible every day. And for the first couple of weeks, you feel, or at least I feel, like a very diligent person. Like I'm profoundly disciplined because at least to this point, maybe 25% of my resolutions are still working. I'm still meeting at least one of maybe four of the things that I've promised from the beginning of the, of the year to do. And so it feels really, really good for the first week or so. And to let you know, I've, I have been actually re trying to read my Bible more, more focused and, you know, praise God, I've actually been able to keep to it this far in the, in the new year. It's been, uh, it's been great reading the Bible every day and being changed by it. And part of that is that I've actually been reflecting on it a little bit more. You read the Bible in the morning and for some reason it just keeps, it sticks there. And so in the rest of the day when you're facing other things, the Bible kind of hits into your life. But I have to admit, that doesn't make me feel good about myself usually because I usually remember the word of God after I've just done something that the word of God told me not to do. I don't know if you have that experience, do you? Okay, some of you, some of you do, okay. I am not completely alone, that's good. Because that's, that gives me a bit of a, an understanding of why the Bible is so important. And uh, why, and I, one of the verses that I like to read a lot is Hebrews <laughs> chapter 4, verse 12. I've used it in prayers here in the morning, and I've uh, quoted it a bunch of times. And the verse goes like this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. I usually stop there, but it keeps going. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's kind of the interesting part about having read the Bible kind of daily for a, a couple of weeks. I've been noticing how I get convicted of things. And, it, and it's interesting, it's different than the way that, you know, people like to think of conviction, because, you know, I, I could get up here as a preacher and ram fire and brimstone down at you. You guys are heathen sinners, you need to repent. <laughs> Sorry, I, uh, I, I don't mean any, any disrespect to our Southern brothers. But seriously, I could do that. And lots of people think that that's what conviction of sin looks like. And that's not my experience of the word of God. Because the God I see in scripture is different than that. Than the, the, you know, like overarching, you know, powerful, you guys are wrong, you need to repent type God. Though there is that there and I do see sin in that and I am convicted of it but more the loving God who desires that I return to him, that I turn to him after my sin and that I put my trust in him and that I be changed. You see, that verse is true. It's not as true as it should be in my life, but I found that more and more as I look deeply into the word of God, the verse becomes more true. I, I see God discerning the intentions of my heart. And honestly, they're pretty dark usually. But he's changing them through this. And I can see repentance. But this isn't the way that it generally is. You see, I, I feel the spirit of God turning my cold heart towards him and I feel my heart softening. Well, but other days, well... I read the word of God, I read a couple of Bible verses and I check off my little box and then I walk away and it doesn't really seem to show up again in my, in my thoughts. See, so sometimes it's good and living and active and does exactly what it claims and other times, well, it feels like a chore I've met, uh, a check mark on my on my spiritual to-do list for the day. Do, do, you, do you understand that? Do you, do you have the similar experience sometimes? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And you see, I think Nehemiah 9 tells us a great deal that can help us. You see, last time I was preaching in Nehemiah was in October. I know that's a while ago, and I know most of you probably haven't gone back to listen to that sermon before you come here, just for the Coles Notes version. I told you in, about Nehemiah 8, we see how God can bring revival to people when it isn't expected. And that centrally, revival is when people begin to see God and get their joy in him. Not just the kind of surface happiness that only lasts until somebody cuts you off in traffic or you find that pumpkin spice latte is no longer available again until next fall. And the kind of surface joy that can't survive the real life you're going to have because there is real suffering in this world. And if you're not having suffering now, somebody next to you is suffering now. And if you're not suffering now, someday you will suffer because we are in a world of sin and problems happen and yet God 
promises a joy that transcends that. And that joy is to be found at his right hand as you look through the scriptures and you see him. But that was last time. This week in Nehemiah 9, we're going to see the people of God and the nature of God's chain, of the change God worked in them. Nehemiah 9 is basically a very long prayer. It's pretty detailed. It gives us, though, a vision of what it looks like to be the people grounded and growing in the truth. A people not merely that know the word of God, but are powered by the spirit of God and guided by the word of God. There's a difference. Not just the people who can give an intellectual assent to what the word of God says, but can actually understand how the word of God works its way through their lives because that's what they're experiencing. Where the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So just to let you know where I'm going, there are going to be three applications at the end of this because, well, I'm a Baptist preacher and I'm told a sermon needs three points in a story. You've already gotten the story, I'm gonna give you three points, but I only have one point. Here it is in case you wanna know. The Bible is our story. More than that, it is our history. It is reality. The God it describes is our God. The faithfulness he shows to the people of God is faithfulness he has shown to us. This isn't merely true because we're all made in the image of God. We are, and it is true because of that, but it's more than that. But also because in Christ, we are grafted into the people of God. That's my contention, and I'm gonna start by giving you some evidence from Nehemiah 9, and then I'm gonna give you my case. So with that in mind, please turn to Nehemiah chapter nine, and yes, I'm gonna read it. <laughs> now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chennai. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Perataiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God. From everlasting to everlasting, Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all of their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. 
and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and you gave the him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made him with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them by the day, by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them from out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and their, our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you, in your great mercy, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The, power of the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light their way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from the mouth, their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, 
they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and a merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people. Since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom. And amid your great goodness that you gave them in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sin. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. A lot of stuff there. And I, I can't plumb the depths of it today. It's just too much stuff. But I do want to make a couple of basic points. Now, first of all, I'm talking about the Word of God. And some people might, regi might register and have noticed that when they stood up and in the place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God. Now, we as Christians see that the Word of God is the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. That's what we would say. And we would say that, you know, th this is the book of the law not the whole Bible, you know, that's not the same thing. So they will say that, the that these guys were just listening to laws and that's why they came to these conclusions. I think that's a little bit misguided. 
You see, their, their desire wasn't to repent because of a bunch of regulations, you know, the do's and don'ts of your newly atheist college friend and with maybe six months of post-secondary education, thought is religion. You know, the world thinks religion is a bunch of do's and don'ts, right? Except that's not what the Bible is. And that's actually not what the law of the Lord of their God was. You see, in case you aren't a Bible person and haven't read it before, when it talks about the book of the law, it's talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. And if you've read them, it's not just a list of rules. I mean, I'm, I'm in Genesis right now, but it's not just a bunch of rules. It tells you a whole story. And just in case you don't think that I'm the, you think that I'm the only one who th who's saying that, I, I noticed this in a book I read this week, not a Christian book, but Norman Doidge in the Forward to the 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson says, one neat thing about the Bible story is that it doesn't simply list its rules as lawyers or legislatures or administrators might. It embeds them in a dramatic tale that illustrates why we need them. You see, when we talk about the law of the Lord our God, and when, when he's talking about the books of the law that these people read, he's talking about the books of the Old Testament and the first five books that show all of the things that you just saw listed in that prayer that they gave. And, and, these are, and as Steve said last week, he doesn't like to call them stories because lots of people believe that stories are just things you make up. These are actually true stories. This is real history, but it is put in a story format. It's in the long list of things that happen. So, and, and you can see that it's not just rules, not only because it says it's the law of the Lord your God, but also because it talks about how the long prayer, I mean, the thing I just read you, recapitulates the entire history of Israel to that point. In fact, it actually recapitulates the entire history of the world to that point, from creation to the point that these people are dealing with. So that's not the way that you look at a normal book of, book of laws. It's not what we think of when we think of laws. When we think of laws, we think of what the government of Canada propagates in bills and writes in long law books. Or if you open the criminal code of Canada, you can see, you know, uh, anyone who does X is guilty of an indictable offense, not, not punishable by more than five years in prison. Those kinds of things, which is insanely dull. Let me, let me break it to you, it's really dull. But that's not the law you see in the Bible. That's not the way God gives us his law. And so when it says here that they reviewed the book of the law of the Lord, it's not looking at just a bunch of do's and don'ts. And I mean, to be as kind to your atheist buddy as I possibly can, that's not Christianity. <laughs> I mean, it, it, when we make Christianity about a bunch of do's and don'ts, we're, we're missing the point. <laughs> we really are. And in fact, you can see that here. But even more to the point, they didn't just read rules in the, in the sense of a, of a list of things. If you read a, any group of rules, it doesn't take very long to read them. They read for hours and hours. <laughs> In verse 3, it says, they read 
the law for the quarter of the day. Now, there's some debate as to whether that means the Jewish day of sunrise to sunset or whether it means a 24-hour period. Doesn't really matter. That's the distance between, you know, what? Four hours to eight eight hours? I mean, six hours? That's still a lot of time. So it's it's a lot of time we're talking about here. They... Now, when I was growing up, as a, uh, my minister went over 15 minutes, everybody got angry and left the church because, you know, it's too long, we shouldn't do that. They stood under this for hours. They heard a lot of Bible. To give you an idea, what I just read in Nehemiah, that whole passage, I mean, it felt long for some of us, that was seven minutes. It's not, a l- it's a lot of pa- Bible that they looked into. It would take 73 hours to read slowly from, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. About 73 hours, and you'd have to read slow. So it's a lot of Bible that they were reading. So first of all, this is talking about God's word. It's not just a bunch of regulations. And it changed them. I I don't know how else to put it. The fact that they looked into the word of God changed them. And I don't, and here's why. You can see it in the text. You see, the people of Israel were changed by God's word because first of all, the books of the law got attention. Like I said, about half the day uh, all told. But second of all, it talked about reflection. Notice the first verse. It says, now on the 24th day of this month, Now, to give you an idea, that's about three weeks after the last time they went through the whole listing of the books of of the law of the Lord. Remember at the beginning of chapter eight, they have a period where where the people of Israel hear the book of the law preached to them and they were given the sense of it. So it's a long time between that and this time. They've gone through a period where they had the Feast of Tabernacles for the first time in centuries. So you can see that they had spent some time dealing with this. Their reaction isn't the immediate reaction that you kind of have if we have smoke machines and lasers and really nice songs that try and get you to make a response of saving faith. These people have heard the word of the Lord over a long period of time and have had time to let it sink into their psyches. It's changed who they are. The book of the law got attention and reflection. Now, I like to read history sometimes. Uh, Most recently, I read a book called The Fall of the Ottoman Empire. Riveting, I know. But I couldn't read all of it in one sitting because of the fact that, honestly, I didn't really see it as my story. Well, with the sole exception of the Battle of Gallipoli, which, you know, my grandfather fought in. But other than that, the rest of it didn't look like really that relevant to me. So I didn't really want to put a lot of time into it. I think, and I think you can see clearly through the way that they say it, the people of Israel saw the history that they were hearing, the stories and the laws that they were hearing as their history. It wasn't just a story, 
It was their story. You can tell that by the fact that after they recapitulate all the history of Israel, their reaction is to repent, trusting in the God that they see through all of this. They've gotten the, they've given attention to the word of God and they've seen the word of God work because it's their story. I think this is why we as Christians in modern world sometimes fall into error because of the way we read our Bibles. And I'm going to be a little controversial here. It doesn't change if you're one of these people who knows the Bible really, really well or one of these people who kind of ignores it. We read it wrongly because we often interpret it as a bunch of aphorisms, a bunch of history, a bunch of things that other people did. Things that aren't important to our lives because, well, it wasn't us. We're kind of individualistic that way. We think if it didn't happen directly to us, it's not important. Or if it didn't directly happen to people in our history, it didn't really happen to us in our direct history. And that's a misunderstanding. That's a pretty gross misunderstanding because that's not the way you read the Bible to have the Bible change you. The way you read the Bible is the way these guys do it. They see it as their history. They understand the God that they see through the word is the real God that they know. They see this as reality. And so it's not just a bunch of rules that they throw out at one another to say, you should follow this rule and then you'll be more holy than this other person who doesn't follow this rule. Instead, they'll understand that this is the way the world really is. When God tells you what his law is, he's not telling you because he wants you to follow a bunch of rules. He's telling you because this is the way the world is. And if you want to live in the world that you're in and be happy, live in the real world, not in, your own, in a world of your own imagination. Generally speaking, imagining the things around you is a bad idea. It, you need to live in reality. <laughs> I mean, I, I can believe all I want that I'm a multi-billionaire. Uh, nobody else is going to treat me like one. Because in reality, I'm not. I may believe I'm the most handsome man that has ever lived, but, you know, chances are really good that if you put me next to Leonardo DiCaprio, most women are going to be talking Leo. It's just a fact. Because reality is different than the way, but that's the way we are to read our Bibles, and that's the way we see these people reading their Bibles. They understand that this is reality. More to the point, they understand that this isn't a story for somebody else. This is their story. And friends, this is our story too. This is what we see in Romans chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. Paul, in a long section talking about grafting things in and grafting things out and all this kind of stuff says, but if some branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share the same nourishing root of the olive tree. Now to be clear, that means the Gentiles have been grafted in. We are part of the same story that God has been working out from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. We live somewhere between, you know, about the end of 
the letters to Revelation. But we're part of the story, and it is our story. When we look at the people in Nehemiah's time, we're looking at our people. These are our brothers and sisters living. When we look through the way that God has treated people in the past, we are looking at the way God treats his people, of whom we are some. So we shouldn't be arrogant towards the branches. If you remember, it is not you who support the root, but the, the root supports you. You see, we are supported by the history that God has put throughout, throughout the Bible. This isn't some kind of abstraction. The Bible is not something that you can treat as just a really neat story you can really know about. It's our history. So, so that's the first point. They see this story as their story. They see this, sorry, they see the books of the law and give it attention because it is their story. Number two, they understand the books of the law in such a way as to see God's power, character, faithfulness, provision, and love. Honestly, I'd pick a verse in chapter nine, <laughs> but it's the whole chapter, so, and I'm not gonna read it again because it would take too long. But you can see this. They don't just use the book of the law as some way of, again, getting more information as if it's an abstract thing. They're using the word of God to understand who God is. They understand that God has provided for them. They understand that God has saved them in the past. They understand that God has done great and mighty things for them, that he has provided for them over and over and over again. And more importantly, that when the people turned from their wickedness towards God, God forgave them and gave them an inheritance and kept them because God is faithful. They looked through the law of God and didn't just see some kind of abstract God of the philosophers, but saw the real God, a God who loves them implicitly. They saw God's power, his character, his faithfulness, his provision and love. And he, they saw it in the context again, that this is their God, not some outside God. Third, the book of the law opened their eyes to their own sinfulness and their need to repent. And I'm sorry I'm going here, but I have to. We live in a world where most people would prefer to believe that God is a booster. God just sits in heaven and says, you guys are awesome. I just love you guys. And you know, I know you do terrible things, but you know, I still love you guys. And I don't really care about all of the evil we do to each other day in and day out. And what kind of God is that really? I mean, I just think about the way I have thought about my brothers and sisters even this morning. You know what? Looking at the goodness and faithfulness and, and, and loving kindness and faithfulness of God, and thinking about the things that 
I have thought through, have gone through my head this morning and I haven't repented of immediately? I'm surprised God didn't strike me dead. I thoroughly deserved it. The only reason I know that is because I see who God is. I see that his love has been beyond anything I could ever imagine. I think it's terrible that that person went across two lanes on the way through, on the way here and made me have to slow down a microsecond. I thought that was terrible and he deserved to die. And yet, I have displeased God with blasphemies even this morning. I treated my coffee as more valuable than the Lord God. And I mean, that's, that seems funny, but just get how blasphemous that is. And we miss that. We miss that so easily if we just paper over who God is. If we imagine that God is an abstraction that we can remake in our own image and we don't look into the word of God and understand that he's revealing to us who he really is. Because friends, he really is that holy. He really is that good. So the fact that I'm not is really a huge problem. And I'm not saying that because I want us to feel terrible about ourselves. I really am not. I'm saying that because we don't have to live there. Because the God that we see is not just holy and righteous and just. He is forgiving and merciful and gracious. And both we see in the cross of Christ. We don't even need to think about whether or not this is true. I mean, cross, he paid for it. And that's why we have a cross on the back of the church here, because he paid for those sins. But they're really sins. They're really bad, and we really need to repent of them, because they're, they really are that bad. I mean, I, I, I can't think of any other way to say it. And that's what the people of Israel in Nehemiah's time saw. That's why this whole prayer, if you look at the uh, title in some of your Bibles, it's going to say the people of Israel confess their sins. That's why this whole thing about talking about how holy and righteous and powerful God is, is called a confession. It's because they're confessing their sin and turning to a God who will forgive them. They see through the book of the law, not just God's power, character, faithfulness, provision of love. They see their own sinfulness and need to repent. That was point three. And I lied, I'm going to do a point four. The books of the law tell them to actually repent. Now, I say that because I know my own heart. One, I'm in church on Sunday morning and I hear Pastor Steve give an amazing message and I'm thinking, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do better. I have all the best intentions in the world. I really do. I'm going to go out. I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to, you know, reach people for Jesus. I'm going to pray. I'm going to know my Bible. I have the best intentions in the world. I have the intention to repent. 
but it takes maybe 15, 20 minutes before I actually find out that I really didn't, didn't repent. You see, repentance actually requires that you turn away from your wickedness to live, not that you just intend to turn away from your wickedness and live. I mean, if my bad feelings on Sunday morning were adequate to save, uh, I, I, I would have been saved <laughs> fine, and I wouldn't have to worry about my sinfulness. I wouldn't be a sinner. I wouldn't have blasphemed God at least 10 times this morning. They actually repent. How do I, how do I know? Look at verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Now, again, this world tends to be against these kinds of covenants in writing or the firm covenants. I mean, it's one of the reasons why it's hard to sell the idea of church membership because we don't like making covenants. We like, we like to imagine that, you know, we can have good feelings in our hearts and that those good feelings will do whatever we need them to do in our lives. But, but I hate to break it to you. Our, hit, our, our hearts are fickle. Our desires change with the wind. If it weren't for the fact that I have brothers and sisters who I need to be praying for me, who I need to actually remind me of the things that I do wrong and, the, and remind me of the truth of who God is, I probably wouldn't remember him most of the time. I wouldn't be able to change one whit of my, unless of my own behavior if it weren't for the fact that I actually have the blessing of God's family around me. And I mean, I don't want to harp on membership too much, but part of it is that I know that there's a bunch of brothers and sisters who pray for me and who hold me accountable to who God is. And in our best times, we as a church do that. At our best times, we do that lovingly. That's my experience. It really is. And that's why I think it's important that the people of Israel at this time actually made a covenant. They actually didn't just put their intentions in their hearts and say, I'm going to do better. They said, and put it on black and white. I will make it better. And because it says we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents, sealed documents, that means people who have authority put seals on it, are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. They said, our leaders have said this, and they will hold us accountable to this. They didn't just have the intention to repent. They went through the process of actually repenting. Those of us who will see baptism this evening will know what that's like. That's, what's what, that's what we're watching in baptism today. These people are making it clear that they have repented from sin and turning and are turning to righteousness. They want to say to the world and those around them, and even to the rest of us who are believers, I am a believer and I want to be held to being a believer. I want you to pray for me. I want you to spend time with me. When you see me stumbling, I want you to say to me, you know what, Steve, you're, you're, you're off right now. And then show me why from the word of God. So that's what you see them. The books of the law call them to actually repent, just as it should for us. See, they not only intend to live in the reality of God, 
which is what they should do. I mean, it is their story. They intend to live in the reality of who God is. They intend to be held to it. So why are we different? Because we are. I mean, at least, okay, I'm not going to say you guys are. I am. So often I don't see the word of God this way. I don't really function this way. I wish I did. I wish I could tell you I'm awesome. But I'm not. So how can I live better as a person of God? And I think this is what I see in the text, and I think this is what, if <laughs> take it as you see it. But first and foremost, we need to pay attention to and reflect on the word of God. Uh, and uh, again, I don't know how to say it any clearer. We need to, I, I'm not going to say we just need to read this book. Yes, we do. <laughs> That's the bare minimum, though. <laughs> we need to pay attention to it, and not just pay attention to it, reflect on it. You see, normally speaking, we have a paradigm of the world that we've grown up with. We understand reality to be what the rest of the world calls reality. I mean, we're here for what? Maybe two hours a week? And with the rest of the week, we spend listening to the messages of the world. Without the word of God working in our lives, not just as a piece of data, but being paid attention to, being reflected upon, we're going to believe that, you know, the, 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 what the world says is basically true, and then try to tack on Jesus on the top. And it's not going to work. Instead, we need to be the kinds of people who dwell in the word of God. I, again, strange way of putting it, but I can't think of a better way. We need to be the kind of people who dwell in the universe that God tells us this universe really is. We need to be the kind of people who look at the word of God. We pay attention to it. We think on it. And we see how it's accurate in our lives. We need to trust it, not just know it, and I mean, when I turn into traffic and that guy cuts me off, and I know it's hard to do at the, at the basic, I need to be the kind of guy who has so steeped himself in the word of God that I understand that even if he is a jerk, God loves him and desires to, for him to be saved. And even if he's, and if he's not a jerk, he, maybe he needed to get somewhere quickly and didn't just, just didn't see me there. I need to be merciful like God is merciful. I need to think the best of the person around me. And all of those are Bible verses. And in, to do that, I need to see the Bible as more than just a bunch of phrases. I need to see it as more than a bunch of do's and don'ts. I need to see it as the story of the way reality really is, which gets me to point two. We need to see the word of God as reality, of which we our part. Not just reality that's kind of abstract, you know, uh, I know that uh, the acceleration due to gravity is 9.81 meters per second per second, but the kind of person who knows that when I drop something, it's going to fall like that. I need to be the kind of person who knows that God loves me, not just in the, sa in the way that I know that the President of the United States is Donald Trump. 
but I need to know that he loves me. The way I know my mom loves me. The way that by God's grace, I know that you as my church family love me. I need to see the word of God as reality of which I am a part. I need to see that the history that I see in the Bible is the history that God has placed me in. That the role I play in life here is the role that God desires for me to play. And that each of you, I'm playing roles in your lives too that God has ordained for me. I need to love you guys as God loves you. I need to live in the universe that God has created because that's the only universe there is. See the, Lord, the word of God as reality of which we are a part. And because the word of God describes not just a story, but our story, we need to be people who dwell as players in the story. It says in the word that God has given us acts that he's prepared from before time for us to fulfill. The Lord God has not forgotten you. He's decided on things that you need to do in your life. He's ready to use you to fulfill his goals here in St. John's and to the ends of the earth. I don't know what that looks like, but I know he's got those goals for you. He's got those goals for me. We need, to be dwell, we need to dwell as players in God's story, not people who create our own story and make God fit into it. I need to be a person who sees God's story as paramount. And so I don't go around trying to make you guys fit the paradigm that I want you to fit. But instead, fill what God tells me to do and pray that God will lead you similarly so that we can all glorify God together. See, we need to live in the reality of God rather than in our own mere stories. Friends, whether you think that's what the situation is or not, I mean, if you go to the university today, they'll tell you about postmodernism. <coughs> and the postmodern understanding is that truth is defined by the communities in which the truth is existing. There's a truth for Christians, there's a truth for Buddhists, there's a truth for atheists. <clears throat> there's a truth for people who need water. There are all different truths. 